Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. If you grow tomatoes, it's very likely that you've had some sort of disease attack your plants. In our area of West Central Missouri, it's usually some early blight followed by septoria leaf spot with, you know, maybe some powdery mildew thrown in just for fun. We may even experience tomato leaf curl if it's a bad year for whiteflies. Every area has their own tomato diseases to contend with. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the eight most prevalent tomato plant diseases, how to prevent them, how to spot them, and how, if at all, you can treat for them, prevent the spread, and hopefully save your harvest. And even if you've never experienced a disease problem in your tomatoes, count yourself lucky, first of all, but you should also know what to look for because there's always a first time for everything. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. All right, quick reminder, this is your last chance for two different things. First, if you've not told me who you are, where you garden, and what piece of advice you wish you had when you first started gardening, you need to do that by this coming Friday, July 1st. Now, this is, of course, my collaboration with you for the 100th episode of this podcast, and I really do want all of you to be involved. So leave me a message at the link in the show notes or send me a DM on social media or email me from the contact page at justgrowsomethingpodcast.com to collaborate with me. This is also your last chance to get anything out of the merch shop before we launch the summer collection. So if you've been eyeballing a tank top or a mug or anything else from the spring collection, get over to the shop on the website and get the goods before it's too late. So I hope that your garden is going well thus far for you this summer, and if you're one of my gardening friends in the Southern Hemisphere, that you've got some winter gardens going too. And if you're listening to me in your earbuds in the garden right now, do me a favor and stop and take a drink of water. I just know you have it with you there, right? Okay. So we've had a little bit of a break in the overbearing heat that we were experiencing here in the Midwest for the past couple of weeks, and unbelievably, I was able to have the windows open last night to cool the house down a little bit. We'll be climbing back up into the 90s again later in the week, though, so it's only a temporary reprieve, but it's made weeding and trellising in the gardens much more comfortable. Which brings me to this week's DRL. What am I doing? We are finishing up the beautiful garlic harvest, continuing to start the seedlings for fall, trellising the tomatoes, and battling Japanese beetles. Holy cow! We had them the last two years in the area in front of the house where my fruit trees are, and they did a number on the poor young trees two years ago, really just destroying the foliage. 
So last year, I would go out with my container of soapy water and just flick those bad boys right into the bucket. They didn't seem to be anywhere else en masse like that on the farm, but just in those trees. This year, though, we have them by the thousands in our front field, and they are devouring anything that's not covered. Specifically, they have destroyed our first green bean crop. I have about 600 row feet of green beans out there that should have been ready to harvest this week, but those beetles have come through and destroyed the vegetation and just created a pockmarked mess out of the beans themselves. We're not going to get anything out of those plants. So along with the copper spray that I ordered for my tomato plants, which we'll talk about here in a minute, I ordered some spinosad. Now, spinosad is an organic insecticide based on chemical compounds that are found in the bacterial species Saccharopolyspora spinosa, which is specifically a soil-dwelling bacterium that was collected on a Caribbean island from crushed sugarcane that was in an abandoned rum distillery. Whatever. It's supposed to work. <laughs> the version I'm using is called Captain Jack's Dead Bug Brew, which is supposed to work really well on bagworms, boars, beetles, caterpillars, moths, mites, loopers, leaf miners, caterpillars, all that stuff. So I've heard a lot of folks here locally use it with really good success. I'm going to link to it in the show notes for you if you're interested. It can be harmful to pollinators before it's dry, though. So I will need to apply this to the next round of green bean plants very early in the morning to give it time to dry before the pollinators come out or do it really late in the evening after the pollinators have gone for the day, but with enough time to let those plants dry out before sundown. You don't want to leave those plants wet overnight. In either case, I'm just hoping to use it long enough to get us through until the beetles finish their life cycle and hopefully get my second round of green beans to maturity without being decimated. If not, well, there's always the fall planting, the buggers. So what am I reading? I am re-reviewing the Midwest Vegetable Production Guide for Commercial Growers that I got way back in 2015. Yeah, it's a bit of a snooze fest, but I find it helpful to go back and peruse some of my growing guides now and then to remind myself of things I may have forgotten over the years or even things I overlooked the first time around. I've had quite a few aha moments rereading gardening books or grower's guides where I wonder how I missed that in the first place and then wishing I had known it sooner. <laughs> and what am I listening to? I'm listening to the Epic Gardening Podcast with Kevin Espiritu. Now, if you know Kevin from his Epic Gardening social media or YouTube accounts or his book, he's got a short daily podcast, around five or ten minutes or so, that touches briefly on a particular topic every single day. And if you listen to last week's episodes, you'll hear a familiar voice who's a friend of this podcast, Marion Whitehead from the Blue Mountain Botanic Gardens, who was here with us on episode 93, The Stories Behind Plants, was on with Kevin all last week on his podcast, and she was just as enjoyable to listen to as she was when she was here. So I will link to both her episode with us and the Epic Gardening Podcast in the show notes. <music> 
Now, on to the question of the week. I kind of struggled to pick one this week because there are so many questions to choose from at this time of the year. I take these questions from what is frequently being asked of me at our market stand and online. And so if you have a question for me, please reach out by leaving me a voice message at the link in the show notes. Shoot me an email from the contact page at justgrowsomethingpodcast.com or send me a DM on Instagram or Facebook and I will happily answer it. Now, the one that I had probably most frequently this week had to deal with the timing of planting for a fall harvest. And this can be tricky depending on where you live. The rule of thumb that I generally go by is to look at my last, I'm sorry, my average first frost date for things that are frost sensitive and count back however many days it takes for that crop to get to maturity and then maybe add a week or two. Why add time? Well, it's twofold. First, I don't want to push my luck on these things because it's a very good possibility that we may get an early frost. And I don't want to come so close to getting a harvest only to lose the plants at the last moment. And second, as the daylight hours start to wane in the fall, the growth of the plant is going to slow down a little bit. Now, if it's a crop that needs many weeks to get to maturity, this is going to make a difference. Fast maturing plants aren't going to experience this as much because they'll be mature before the daylight hours are short enough to kind of stall the growth out. But the things that need the full late summer and into fall to get to maturity are going to slow a little bit as the day length shortens. Adding a week or two gives you a cushion for that slower growth. Now, if you don't have a fall frost or you plan to overwinter any hardy crops like kale or spinach, you need to look at the date that you reach your Persephone period. This is the period when daylight hours fall below 10 hours per day and the plant growth pretty much stalls completely out. Persephone is the Greek goddess of agriculture and I think this term was coined by Elliot Coleman, who is a pioneer in four season gardening, specifically winter gardening. His book, Four Season Harvest, has been on my shelf for many years and I will link to that and his other books in the show notes in case you wanna check those out. Now, our Persephone period begins in the middle of November, about a month or so after our first expected frost in the fall. So any frost-tolerant plants that we intend to harvest um, from over the winter need to be fully grown by this point. Now, I encourage you to find a little spot in the garden where you can plant a little winter garden, even if it's just hardy greens that just need a row cover and some mulch. It's very satisfying to walk outside of the garden and clip fresh greens for a salad in the middle of the winter. I'll link to a sunrise and sunset table in the show notes so that you can look up when your Persephone period is for your area. Now, once you've figured out when to start your seeds for transplant, You'll also need to time those transplants along with the direct sowing of the other seeds that you'll need for a fall crop. Things that I don't start ahead of time for transplant include any of the root vegetables, green beans, loose leaf lettuces, and other small leafy greens like arugula or spinach. Those I directly sow into the garden where they're going to be. The things that I do start for transplant include all of the brassicas, so your broccoli, cauliflower, kale, cabbages, all that stuff, uh, late celery, and the head lettuces. So with the things that need to be direct sown into your garden, do the same thing as you would for when you start your transplants. Count back from your first frost or your Persephone period based on the number of days to maturity for what you're planting and then add a week or two. 
Now, here's another reason why adding a week or two to your plan can be beneficial. Depending on where you live, you may need to be flexible on your planting dates due to weather conditions. Our fall planting dates here are at the end of July and around the beginning of August. And it is hot as blazes here at that time and often with very little rainfall. So we need to time our field plantings for when there's a break in the weather, if at all possible. The plantings that go into my raised beds by the house can have a little bit more flexibility because I can water those if needed, but it's still never good for a plant to be transplanted the evening before it hits 100 degrees Fahrenheit with a heat index of 115. This is also very important if you live in an area that has water restrictions. So starting the plants just a little bit earlier can give you the opportunity to plant earlier if the weather looks more forgiving than it will by the end of your 10-day forecast. No matter what you plant, be sure you pull out your frost protection measures once you get toward the end of the season if your area gets frost. I usually pull mine out at around this at the end of September, even though our first typical frost doesn't hit until about mid-October-ish because you never know what Mother Nature's up to. We've had frost at the beginning of October, and then we hit 90 degrees Fahrenheit again oh, about 10 days later. It's insane, and you want to be prepared. If you have any questions about when and how to start your seeds for your fall garden, please feel free to reach out to me. I am happy to answer all of your questions. All right, now on to tomato diseases. As you know, when I do crop-specific episodes, I always include some mention of the plant pests and diseases, but those episodes would be super long if I dove into the details of those things, so it's usually just mentioned before I move on to the harvest and the storage notes. Inevitably, I will have someone reach out about one of the diseases I mentioned, asking what it looks like because they think they might have it and what can they do to fix the situation. So I'm going to start doing more of these types of episodes specifically regarding pests and diseases for specific crops. Now, I'm not going to hit all of the possible diseases that you could get on your tomatoes. I'm just going to hit the eight most common ones. There are, honestly, so many diseases that could hit your tomato plants depending on where you live. This would be a three-hour episode if I covered them all. So. These are going to be the ones that I have seen and read are the most prevalent. Now, I've not had direct experience with all of them, thankfully, but I have a lot of resources from my college classes and all my growers guides, so I'll do my best to relay the info on the ones that I'm not familiar with so you can at least get an idea of what to look out for and how to prevent or contain diseases in your tomatoes. I would always recommend doing a search on your local university extension service or plant lab website for diseases that are most common in your area so you're not freaking out about something that just isn't very common in your climate. So without further ado, let's dig into the eight most common tomato plant diseases. First up, bacterial wilt. Bacterial wilt, it's also called southern bacterial blight, is a serious disease caused by Ralstonia solanacearium. Now that last name there, solanacearium, tells you this is a disease of the solanaceae, right? Our tomatoes, our peppers, our potatoes, that sort of thing. This bacteria survives in the soil for extended periods and it enters the roots through wounds made by transplanting, cultivation, insect feeding damage, what have you. 
This is different from the bacterial wilt that we see in cucumbers and other curcubits. That bacterial wilt is spread by insects, specifically cucumber beetles. This bacterial wilt is specific to tomatoes and their other Solanaceae cousins and resides in the soil. Now, high temperatures and high moisture speed the growth of this disease. The bacteria multiply rapidly inside the water-conducting tissues of the plants, that's the xylem, filling it with slime. <laughs> so this causes a really fast wilting of the plant while the leaves still stay green. And if an infected stem is cut crosswise, it's going to look brown and you're going to have these tiny droplets of a yellowish ooze coming out of it. Yum. So control of bacterial wilt when you have infected soil is really, really difficult. Um, rotation with non-susceptible plants like your corn, beans, cabbage for at least three years between planting other Solanaceae will provide some control. You do not want to use peppers or eggplant or potatoes, sunflowers or cosmos in that rotation. You do want to remove all infected plant material if you discover that your plants are infected. Though unfortunately, there is no chemical control for this disease. So you might consider growing all of your susceptible solanaceous plants in a separate, newly prepared garden site if you discover that you have bacterial wilt. You want it to be completely separate from your original garden. And then you also want to make sure that you thoroughly hose off all the soil from any of your tools that you used in the original infested beds and thoroughly sterilize them before you use them in your new garden site. Next on our list is early blight. Early blight, also known as alternaria leaf spot, is one that I am very familiar with. This disease is caused by the fungus alternaria linearii, and it first pops up as these small brown lesions, mainly on the older foliage of your tomato plants. The spots then get bigger and they form these concentric rings in a bullseye pattern, usually smack dab in the center of the diseased area. And then the, the tissue surrounding the spots is going to start turning yellow, a sickly color. Now, here's what usually causes the biggest problem. If you get both high temperatures and high humidity at this stage of the disease, a lot of the foliage on your plant is just going to be killed off. Plants with early blight may also get lesions on the stems that look very similar to the ones on the leaves. And it sometimes causes collar rot, which is where the lesions will girdle the plant right at the soil line. If all of this doesn't kill the plant off and it does manage to produce fruit, the fruit will often have really large lesions, usually covering most of the entire fruit with those concentric rings. And then the infected fruit usually just drops right off the plant. Now, this fungus survives on infected debris in the soil. It survives on seeds. It will show up on volunteer tomato plants and other solanaceous plants like potatoes and eggplants, plus black nightshade, which is a very common weed, and it is also in that same family. That's generally what we think is the alternate host in our area that holds onto the fungus until it's time to spread it all happily to our tomato plants, that black nightshade. So... To prevent the disease, you want to use resistant or tolerant tomato varieties if you can and don't save seeds from open pollinated plants that were infected the year before. Use a good crop rotation. 
keep your weeds and your volunteer tomato plants at bay and use proper plant spacing to keep them from touching each other. You want that airflow. Mulch your plants to keep the soil from splashing up on, uh, onto the, the leaves and try to avoid overhead watering, especially during very warm and humid times of the season. Now, if you see signs of the disease, trim off and dispose of all of the infected lower branches and the leaves. This is one reason why I generally will prune my tomatoes so that the leaves and branches that are closest to the ground are completely removed even before I see signs because it's pretty inevitable that we're going to get it here. Um, if you do end up with more signs of the disease, make sure you trim up and remove all of those affected leaves and then treat with an appropriate fungicide for your garden practices. For me, that means a copper fungicide. I'm getting ready to apply my first round of it this week and I'll put a link in the show notes for what I will be using. I am very confident I'll be able to nip it in the bud because yes, I am already seeing signs of it on my lower leaves. And I am thankful this week is predicted to be a little bit lower in humidity so I can trim up the plants and give them a good spray of that copper. So usually what follows immediately after early blight in my garden is next on my list, which is Septoria leaf spot. But it absolutely can be its own standalone disease in your area. The reason it follows early blight so well is because the fungus that causes it, Septoria lycopersici, is most active when temperatures range between 68 and 77 degrees Fahrenheit and the humidity is high and there has been some rainfall or some overhead irrigation wetting the plants. That is usually the conditions that follow our hot, humid weather where the early blight comes in. In fact, we're getting that now with overnight lows in that temperature range. But we're in a dry spell right now, so the humidity isn't quite as bad, but I have no doubt it's coming back soon, and therefore septoria will probably rear its ugly head. Now, septoria leaf spot damages the tomato foliage, the petioles, and the stems, but unlike early blight, the fruit is not infected. Now, infection usually occurs on the lower leaves near the ground after the plants begin to set fruit. You'll get numerous small circular spots with dark borders surrounding a beige colored center on, once again, the older leaves. These are the ones that are usually closest to the ground. And in the center of those spots, you'll see these tiny black specks, and those are the spore-producing bodies. Severely spotted leaves will turn yellow, they'll die, they'll fall off the plant, and then this defoliation is going to weaken the plant, it's going to reduce the size and the quality of the fruit, and it's going to expose any fruit that does develop to sunscald. Now, this fungus is not soil-borne, but it can overwinter on crop residue from previous crops, decaying vegetation, um, and on some of those weeds related to, to tomato, like that black nightshade that we talked about. So, Prevention includes crop rotation, as always, and cleaning up all the garden debris at the end of the season, keeping those related weeds in check, and not using overhead irrigation. Now, once you see the disease, remove the infected leaves, prune them to ensure good airflow, and then that same copper spray that I'll be using for the early blight can also be used for septoria leaf spot. In my case, using it multiple times in the early part of the season controls both of them, and I'm usually good to go after that. So the next disease on our list is bacterial spot. Now this disease is caused by several species of the bacterium Xanthomonas, which infect green tomatoes, but not red tomatoes. So the disease is more prevalent during wet seasons, 
Damage to the plants includes leaf and fruit spots, which result in reduced yields, defoliation, and so once again, sun-scalded fruit. The symptoms consist of numerous small, angular to irregular water-soaked spots on the leaves, and then slightly raised to scabby-looking spots on the fruits that look like black dots. The leaf spots have a yellow halo, and the centers of the spots will start to dry out, and they may cause the leaf to actually tear in the center. Now, the bacteria survive the winter on volunteer tomato plants and on infected plant debris. Seeing a pattern here? Moist weather can also lead to disease development. Another pattern. Most outbreaks of the disease can be traced back to heavy rainstorms that occurred in your area. Infection of the leaves occurs through natural openings, but infection of fruits must occur through insect punctures or other mechanical injuries. So if you see the beginnings of this disease, you want to make sure that you are clearing out as many of the insect pests as you can and be careful not to puncture the fruit while you're working with it. Now, bacterial spot is difficult to control once it appears in your garden. Any water movement from one leaf or plant to another, like splashing raindrops, that overhead irrigation, or touching and handling the plants while they're wet after it's been rained on, that can spread the bacteria from the diseased plants to the healthy plants. So prevention is really important here. Only use disease-free seeds and plants. Crop rotation is key. And again, avoiding overhead watering. Remove and dispose of all the diseased plant material if you see any, and then prune your plants to promote air circulation. Once again, a copper fungicide will give fairly good control of this disease and get you all the way through to your harvest. Now, the next disease on our list of dastardly tomato diseases is anthracnose. Anthracnose on tomatoes is caused by a group of fungi within the genus Colototrichum, and these species are primarily pathogens specifically of the tomato fruit. Now, as the fruit are ripening, the symptoms first become noticeable as small, circular, indented areas, and then that indented area later gets this really dark center to it. Those diseased spots are going to continue to get bigger and bigger with time because the infection is continuing to spread deeper into the fruit. And then if you combine this with warm, moist, and humid weather, you'll see these pinkish colored spores that are standing up from the black fungal material that's in the center of the spots. And then those spores are spread by splashing water, like, you guessed it, rain or overhead irrigation. Now, the fungus that causes anthracnose can be transmitted within the seed. So if your seeds aren't certified as being free of this specific fungus, you can take matters into your own hands by treating them by soaking them in 122 degree Fahrenheit water for 25 minutes to destroy the fungus prior to planting. And there are some varieties of tomatoes that have built in resistance to anthracnose. Once again, do not over irrigate your tomatoes. Uh, splashing water aids in the spread of those fungal spores. How many times are we going to say that in this episode? <laughs> plant the garden in a sunny site and stake or cage your tomato plants to provide better air movement and better leaf drying conditions. You want your leaves dry. 
keep your garden weed free. The presence of weeds may raise humidity levels around the plants and that's going to slow the drying conditions. And of course, you very well may have other weeds in the Solanaceae family that are there that can also harbor this disease. Now, because this disease does affect other plants in the Solanaceae family, you really want to be sure that you're rotating your crops, preferably nothing in that family in the same space for three years. And like I said, some weeds that infest the garden are also in the same family, which is another reason to keep your garden as free of weeds as possible. Yeah, I know, easier said than done. The fungal spores can remain in the soil to infect plants the following year. So mulching your garden is going to help create a barrier between that soil surface and the fruit to reduce infections. Um, harvest your tomato fruit daily and then remove and destroy the crop debris as soon as the crop has finished bearing. Do not add this debris to your compost. You want to burn it or otherwise remove it from your property. Now, fungicide sprays can help reduce anthracnose disease, specifically the copper ones. There are chemical-based products um, that can be sprayed weekly to reduce infection. It's entirely up to you if you choose to use those. Just please follow the label directions. Remember, the label is the law. For instance, there is a five-day waiting period between spraying and picking if you're using a spray that contains mancozeb. So be cognizant of what you're using and how you're using it. Our next disease is fusarium wilt. This is a warm weather disease caused by the fungus Fusarium oxysporum. Now this is particularly common in the southern U.S., but it can occur anywhere, really. The first indication of disease usually happens early in small plants where the lower leaves will droop and wilt, and then the leaves begin to turn yellow, and then finally the entire plant just wilts over and dies. Now, often leaves only on one side of the stem will turn yellow at first. And the outside of the stem of these wilted plants won't show any signs of decay, but when you cut it lengthwise, the lower stem will have a dark brown discoloration of the xylem, which is that vascular system that distributes the water throughout the plant. So the fungus is soil-borne, and it passes upward from the roots into the vascular system of the stem, and it blocks the water-conducting vessels in the plant, and that causes the plant to wilt and die. There is no chemical control for fusarium wilt. Once it's in your soil, it's there for the long haul. Once you see signs of this in your garden area, you'll need to stop growing anything that is susceptible to the fungus. There are some cultivars that are resistant to fusarium wilt if you must continue planting, and crop rotation is going to be absolutely important here. But you may end up needing just to create raised beds that contain no native soil in order to prevent the pathogen from taking hold of your plants. Next up, southern blight. This one is caused by the fungus Aphelia rolfsii. The first symptom, just like other wilts, is the drooping of the leaves. Now on the stems, there will be a brown dry rot that develops right near the soil line. And then there's a white fungal growth with these brown little, I don't know, bumps that look like mustard seeds that'll develop over top of that dry rot area. The stem lesion is going to develop really, really rapidly, and it's going to girdle the stem and result in a sudden and permanent wilt of all of the above ground parts of your tomato plant. The fungus can also attack fruits where they touch the soil, so it's important to stake your plants. 
This fungus can survive for years in the soil and the plant debris, and it is favored most by moist conditions and high temperatures. So crop rotation is essential to preventing southern blight. Do not plant tomatoes after beans or pepper or eggplant. It may also help to plant small grains after any of your solanaceae to help with the control. And removal of plant debris immediately after harvest will also help to control the disease. And finally, on our list of these tomato plagues <laughs> is tomato yellow leaf curl. Now, this is a virus that's transmitted by white flies. We talked about this one a little bit a few episodes ago in our question of the week. This disease is extremely damaging to fruit yield in your tomatoes. White flies bring the disease into the garden from infected weeds nearby, specifically those black nightshades and gymsum weed. After infection, your tomato plants may have no symptoms for as long as two to three weeks. And then suddenly, you'll begin to see the upward curling of the leaves, yellowing of the leaf surface between the veins. We call this chlorosis. You'll have smaller leaves than normal on the plant. The plant will be stunted, and then it'll start dropping its flowers. If tomato plants are infected early in their growth, there may be no fruit formed at all. And this infection may be random throughout the garden. Some plants may get it and others may not. Removal of plants that have those initial symptoms may slow the spread of the disease. And any infected plants that you remove should immediately be bagged up to prevent the spread of the white flies feeding on those plants and then bringing them back into your garden to infect your uninfected plants. Keep your weeds controlled in and around the garden site because, again, those weeds may be alternate hosts for the white flies and also for the disease. Now, if you see white flies appear, you can use a neem oil spray to help keep them away or a horticultural oil spray. If you had any infected plants at all or saw an infestation of white fly at the end of the season, Remove all susceptible plants and burn them or dispose of them elsewhere. You don't want the white fly feeding on them or overwintering. If this has been a problem in your garden in the past, there are also tomato cultivars that are resistant to tomato yellow leaf curl virus. Now, like I said, this isn't nearly all of the tomato diseases that we could talk about. Botrytis, leaf mold, powdery mildew, tobacco mosaic virus, verticillium wilt, white mold, Fusarium root rot, Phytophthora blight, Buckeye rot. I mean, I can continue on with the number of possible diseases that want to infect your tomatoes. Again, check with your local agencies and your gardening groups to find out what are the most common tomato diseases in your area, just so you know what to look for. A lot of these sort of look similar when they start out, and it's important to know what's common for your climate so you can figure out what the symptoms mean. Listen, if you found value in today's episode, I'd sure appreciate it if you'd share with someone who you think would also find some value in it, and if you could rate and review this show in your podcast player of choice. And remember, this show is a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network. I'll leave a link in the show notes to the Spotify playlist that features other members of the network and their fantastic podcasts. Next week is the 100th episode, so get those gardening tips into me by Friday, July 1st. Until that episode, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden, and we'll celebrate soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com 
for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to patreon.com slash justgrowsomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon.